over the past 10 years or so, uh, I've had a number of conversations with professing Christians who say something to the effect of, well, I, I used to think that way. I used to think the way you do. I used to see the world. I used to see Christianity the way that you do. Uh, but since then, I have moved on. And of course, it's always implied they've moved on to a, a better, uh, more accurate understanding of, of the Christian life, the Christian faith. And uh, the way they used to think about Christianity and the Christian faith uh, typically has to do with being dogmatic or firm or absolute about certain truth claims. They used to be firm about those things, but now not so much. Things like the necessity of calling men and women to faith and repentance for the forgiveness of sins, or the absolute necessity of believing in Christ's death and bodily resurrection in order to be saved, or perhaps the belief that the Bible is consistent with itself and that the truth in it uh, can be systematized into a coherent set of beliefs, or perhaps they used to think of the importance of defending uh, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. These are the kinds of things that they've since moved on from. So I've spoken often with people who, who view these things, these beliefs, this kind of rigidness, as relics of an immature past. It's something you just need to grow out of in time. Or perhaps they view them as relics now of a bygone age, a former day, a former divisive way of thinking about Christianity, a divisive way about doing theology. Perhaps you remember back uh, 20 years ago, kind of the first decade or so of the 21st century, uh, there was the emerging or emergent church, if you remember that at all. Uh, and we were, this was a movement, a, a movement within evangelicalism, it arose within evangelicalism, that spoke of the need to reimagine the Christian faith. That spoke of, of the necessity of a, a new kind of Christianity, a new kind of Christian. And that this is necessary for the 21st century if we're going to adapt and survive and reach people in this day and age. It needs to be wholly different than it once was. And then just recently, in the last couple of weeks, I read an article. Uh, in the, it's actually in the New York Times. It was a book review. But it was written by a guy who has also been a contributor at the Gospel Coalition website. And in that article, he says that, quote, White Christians have to face the possibility that everything they have learned about how to practice their faith has been designed to explicitly or implicitly reinforce a racist structure. So everything, possibly, everything that you and I, those of us who would be white and Christians, have learned about practicing the faith, has maybe been designed, one way or another, to reinforce racism. In other words, the whole thing has to be reconsidered, perhaps reimagined. 
The whole thing, blown up, start over. In fact, he explicitly suggests in that same article, cleverly, through wondering out loud, if there's anything worth salvaging in so-called white Christianity. And so these ideas, we need to move on from what we used to believe. We need to blow it up. We need to reimagine things. We need to start over. We need to progress. Uh, You know, the idea that that's the old way of thinking that will never reach the present generation. These are common refrains that we hear coming from different corners, within the church even. These are voices that rise up within, supposedly, evangelical churches. And it's always been this way. It really has. You read biographies of faithful men and women of old, 17th century, 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, and you find this common refrain that, oh, modern man won't, won't stand for that old message. Things need to change. We need to adapt with the times. Well, for one reason or another, we need to move on. Well, we've been looking here in Colossians at the end of chapter 1 and now into chapter 2 at what Paul has been saying about Christian maturity and how it is that we get there and how it was that he led Christians towards maturity. And we've seen him say that he did this, he was leading believers to maturity by preaching Christ. Him we proclaim. And of course, it is in the word of God that we find Christ. And even as Paul is writing this letter, he is laying the foundation of scripture as he writes this inspired letter to the Colossians. He was thus fulfilling the commission that Christ had given him to make the word of God fully known. We looked at that back in Chapter 1, and the, verses 24 and 25. And so the word, the scripture, has to be the place that we go to settle these matters, to answer these questions, to settle these disputes about what Christianity is and what it isn't, about it, what it looks like to continue on in the faith, what it looks like to mature in the faith, what it looks like to live as a Christian. Is it progressing endlessly? never really landing, uh, shifting with every generation, whatever the spirit of the age happens to be? Or is there a place where we dig in? Is it right to stand on a particular hill and die there if necessary, unwilling to give any ground? We come to chapter 2 and into verses 6 and 7 today. And Paul now makes an inference from what he has been saying in this section. From chapter 1 verse 24 through to 2 verse 5. He's been talking about maturity and how it is found in Christ. He's spoken of the importance of understanding and reaching full assurance of that understanding. Of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That Christ is the one in whom all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. And after laying these matters out that we've been looking at the last few weeks, he now draws an inference from this. And so he says in verse 6, Therefore, in light of these things, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, 
and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So we want to spend the rest of our time walking through these verses and considering these together. And the first thing here that's clear, Paul tells us that the Christian life is lived by continuing on as we began. Continuing on as we began. That is, by continuing to trust in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, or so live your life in him. He wants us, he wants the Colossian believers and us believers to continue on as we received Christ. Well, what, is, what does this mean, to continue as we received Christ? Well, I think it would be right that we should think, if we think of how it is we received Christ, we should think of the fact that we received him by faith. And this is what, part of what he's getting at here, that we are continuing to walk by faith, having a personal faith in Christ. But this is not a generic kind of faith. People use the word faith in different ways today, one of which is just kind of this think positively is really what they're saying. Just kind of hope against hope for the best. Just you know, keep your head up, think positively, have faith that things will turn out. But biblical faith cannot be separated from its object. That is, it is faith in something or faith in someone, maybe more accurately. And saving faith is faith that is placed in Christ Jesus, in his person and work. Now, of course, as Christians, we believe in the Father and the the Spirit as well. There's other truths. There's other things that we rightfully believe in. But at its core, we believe in Jesus Christ. As Peter said, it is his name that is given among men by which we must be saved. We believe in Christ Jesus. And so, this faith... as we received Christ, this faith involves objective truths, or we might say doctrines. Doctrines that we hear, that we come to understand and agree with, and that we come to trust in. This is faith. And when this happens, faith becomes the means by which we receive not just some doctrinal truths, but Paul says here we receive Christ Jesus the Lord himself. Notice he says that there. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord. They did this, received Christ Jesus the Lord, by trusting him as he was presented to them by Epaphras, who proclaimed the truths about Christ to them. And so we cannot separate the doctrine about Christ from Christ himself. And so as Paul says, as you received, so walk, he is speaking of the personal faith that these Colossian believers have exercised, but also the objective truths, these doctrines that they have been taught and have come to believe. He's saying, continue on trusting in Christ by continuing on believing the things that you were taught about Christ. 
to further show that he's talking about remaining steadfast in the objective truths that have been taught to them, um, consider just a, a few other things. Uh, this word received, as he says, as you received, uh, this is commonly used in a technical way in the New Testament to speak of receiving the apostolic tradition, that is the gospel and apostolic teaching. Galatians 1 and verse 9 is one such place. You can flip there for a moment if you want. Galatians 1 9, as we have said it before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be a curse. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it's similar. He talks about them having received from them that which the message really was, the word of God. They've received the gospel. They've received the truth, the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. This is a technical term often employed about receiving the true gospel. As you received it, Paul's saying here, carry on in it. Furthermore, as we'll see more of in a moment, He's going to explain that to walk in Christ, to continue walking in him, is being rooted, built up, and established in the faith. He's not just saying, you know, to be established in your personal experience of faith, meaning, you know, just as long as you have some sort of faith, uh, that's the important thing, just be built up and established in the fact that you're confident of something, you have a, a faith, No, he wants them to be established in a fuller knowledge, grasp, and conviction of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And of course, this fits with what we've been seeing and what we saw last week as Paul's talking about the importance and the goodness of growing into a full assurance of understanding and a knowledge of the mystery of God, which is Christ. And of course, he then adds, just as you were taught. So he's wanting them to continue on as they were taught in the things that they have been taught. And so Paul has the objective truths in mind that he wants them to maintain, that he wants them to carry on in and to grow up in. And so these truths would certainly include the gospel truths that Paul has already laid out and he has already spoken of in this letter. Namely, Well, let's consider a few of them. The work of the Father, back in chapter 1, verse 12 to 14, transferring sinners out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Then after that, he goes in, in verses 15 to 20, to discuss who this Son is, who the Lord Jesus is in his person, creator of all, the upholder of the universe, preeminent in all things in the original creation and then as he has stepped into time and as he has become the mediator the redeemer and will be the one who brings all things under into submission to God he is preeminent in the new creation as well as the original creation and he's preeminent in all things Paul says and he talks about the former sinfulness of the Colossians and their their waywardness and their alienation they had experienced between them and God, being cut off from him, but how that has now changed and been overcome by the death of Christ. Verses 21 and 20 to 23, we see that. Then again, 
As I've already said, in verses 26 into chapter 2, Paul goes on to talk about this plan of redemption that centers on Jesus Christ and his saving work, the thing he calls the mystery of God. As we get into chapter 2 a little further, we'll see that this saving work involves Christ taking the debt that the Colossians and other believers had before God, their debt before God, and Christ took it and paid it off in full by dying on the cross for their sins, having it nailed to that cross with Christ. And as we have already seen as well in, in verse 22 of chapter 1, Paul has said the fact, he has mentioned the fact that it is God's plan to present believers holy and blameless and above reproach on that day when the Lord Jesus returns. And so it is that the Bible testifies to the reality that God is the holy creator of all things, but that mankind has strayed from him and that every man and woman is fallen, has fallen short of God's glory and has sinned in word, in thought, and in deed and are thereby under God's judgment for this, deserving of his wrath. And yet God the Father has indeed sent his eternal Son to the earth, to take on a human nature, to be born of a virgin, to live under the law, to to die for sinners, to earn a righteousness, to give to sinners. And he rose again from the dead, of course, in victory with full payment being made for sins. And now forgiveness of sins and eternal life are graciously given to all who have faith in the Son, Jesus Christ who repent of their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. These truths are not passing crazes. The Lord Jesus, did he not say that he is the way, truth, and the life? Nobody comes to the Father except through him. We don't have the liberty to move on from this. These are not merely, this is not merely the way we enter into the Christian faith, as if it's a door and then we just, you know, move on to other more impressive things in this building. They are foundational matters that we build upon, as we'll see. These realities are not remnants of a past form of Christianity now to be relegated relegated to the dumpster heap. Because we now live in the 21st century and supposedly know better. Let us not claim to be wiser than the scriptures, nor should we listen to those who would claim to be so. And of course, they would never state it that starkly, but that is what it amounts to. Remember back in verse 23 of chapter 1, Paul said that the future glorification of believers comes to those who indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand presently, and by which you are being saved, 
if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And so he says here, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Stay here. Don't move on from this. The Christian life is not some aimless wandering. It does not have a foundation that needs to change on the fly or shift with every passing generation or whatever the new spirit of the age is or whatever various philosophies converge and majority of people chase after. This is the opposite of what Paul has been saying and is saying here. We hold fast to the gospel and we walk, we live our lives in union with Christ in ways fitting salvation. And so Paul continues with what walking in Christ looks like. It's not moving on. Rather, it is being built up on the foundation of Christ and the gospel. It's not moving away from this, but it's being rooted and then growing up in these realities, living a life that is consistent with and founded upon these truths. So he says here, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught. There are three words here uh, to, to note. Rooted, built up, Built up is two words, but it's really one in in Greek. And established. Rooted, built up, and established. These are all participles in the Greek. If you don't know, you forget your grammar, it's fine. Just think I-N-G words. Uh, And they're participles, and they're all passive. Uh, Passive means the action is not on us, but on another. Here indicating that this is God's work that he does. Now, these realities don't really come across that well in the ESV that I'm reading out of. But listen to the New American Standard Bible, because I think it's better on this point. So as he talks about continuing on, walking in Christ, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in him and established. The word rooted, it's passive, but it's also in what is called the perfect tense. Now, if you, again, if you've moved on from grammar years ago, uh, we're familiar with present tense, something happening now, past tense, future tense, that makes sense to us. Uh, but the perfect tense indicates an action that took place in the past, but has abiding, present, ongoing consequences now. So it is a past yet ongoing condition. And so here it implies a rooting that has taken place. We've been rooted in Christ by God in the past, and this has present-day implications for us now. He's saying continue walking in him because you have been rooted in him. God has done this. He's placed you in Christ. Stay here is what he's getting at. Built up on this. So you have been rooted It switches then from the the perfect to the present tense. And now, presently, are being built up in him and being established in the faith. Again, indicating God's action. 
So if we think of these words here again, the, the word rooted, obviously that sounds like an agricultural metaphor. While built up and established are architectural or building metaphors. It might seem odd to mix metaphors like that. We're told not to, uh, but we won't stick Paul into our modern understanding of things. The reality is both types of metaphors are used uh, consistently throughout the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament and certainly by Paul, agricultural metaphors and building metaphors as well. And the purpose, I think, of what Paul's saying here is clear. The Christian life is one that is rooted in the truth of the gospel and in who Christ is and is thereby there, then built up from there. Another way of saying it, the foundation is Christ. The cornerstone, Paul says elsewhere, is Christ of the faith. And we are built up on top of that into an established or mature structure. In Ephesians, Paul uses that language, that architectural language, that much more uh, as he builds out on this. And we've read from Ephesians a number of times. We've been going through Colossians. Speaking of the church as a, as a temple that's being built up on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone being built into a mature, uh, established structure. That's the idea here. And again, this is being established in the faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says. That which Christ has taught his apostles and which they have passed along and has been handed down to us in the scriptures. This is the truth that Paul's confirming Epaphras brought to the Colossians and he is encouraging them to stay here. You've been rooted in Christ. And so we continue on in this truth. And ultimately it is the triune God that builds his church. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together in perfect harmony to accomplish this. And that's why I think Paul writes these things in the passive voice. You've been rooted in him. He's building you up to an established building into maturity. It is the Father who has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. These are his actions in saving. And so, Paul is saying, abide here. Abide in Christ. Hold fast to these truths. Cling to the gospel. Continue on in the word of God as it is these things that build your faith that God uses to bring you up into maturity. Which again, as we saw, is why he preaches Christ. To bring about maturity. When it comes to growing to what we should do to live a Christian life, we are, I think, often very quick to jump to the things that we should do, the actions that we are called to, to be mature. But this reminds us here that ultimately, God is the one who sanctifies, that he is the one who builds his church and builds up the church into maturity. This is the foundation of it. Absolutely, God uses means to accomplish this. He uses his word. He uses prayer. He uses the Lord's Supper. 
He uses spiritual gifts of other believers being exercised to accomplish these things, but all of those things are ultimately means employed by God to accomplish this. He is the power behind the building up of the body. If you remember at the end of chapter 1, verse 29, as Paul talks about this labor, which he works hard to do, he won't take credit for it. He acknowledges that it's really God working in him, even as he works hard. So yes, Paul is going to get into some specific and direct commands for the Colossians about what they ought to do to be living according to Christ in various areas of their lives. He's like, for example, in the family, in the home, in chapter 3, he's going to get into these matters later and into chapter 4. But first things first, Paul wants them to stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the word of God whereby true knowledge and understanding flows because they've been rooted and are being built up and established therein by God. And so as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so continue on in him. Stay here. Be built up on this foundation. So as you come to the Word of God, I would encourage you to read it not merely looking for commands, not merely looking for things to do, but to look for what the text teaches you about who God is, what the text teaches you about Christ, about the Messiah, about God's plan of redemption. Whether it's what he has done in the past, whether it's it's talking about what he's planning to do in the future. To ask and consider what the text teaches you about God's redemption, about the kingdom of God, and so on. These are things that we cling to. These are things that build us up. Likewise, as you pray, when you pray for yourself and for others, pray that you and others would hold fast to Christ. That faith and confidence in him would grow as understanding would increase. That you and others might walk in him as you've received him, growing up in the foundation that has been laid. The Colossians were being inundated with false teaching and Paul would have them first hold fast to the gospel to continue on as you received Christ. And to repel that which does not fit with this. And we'll see that as we get to verse 8 next week. Finally, we see in here that walking in Christ, abiding in Christ, includes an abundance of gratitude. An abundance of gratitude. This is a fourth and final participle. And it now moves from the passive voice to the active Abounding in thanksgiving, he says. Thanksgiving is a major theme throughout the scriptures, throughout the Bible, but certainly in Paul and even in this letter to the Colossians. Earlier in in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul declared his continual thanksgiving to God for the faith of the Colossians 
and the gospel that it was bearing fruit in their midst and all around the world. This was something God thanked, or that Paul thanked God for, because ultimately it was God's doing. Then in verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul reveals that part of his prayer for the Colossians was that they might be giving thanks to the Father who had qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Into chapter 3, Paul's going to continue to exhort them to thankfulness in verses 15 and 17. The reality is there is so much for us to be thankful to God for. But at the top of the list is gratitude for redemption in Christ. Gratitude for grace that we have received from God Almighty. Gratitude for the faith that exists. For God's work of saving and keeping his children and building us up. Truly, if you consider the magnitude of the benefit that we have received, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, this benefit that we've graciously received from God, it really does demand a thankfulness, does it not? A gratitude. It is truly gratitude, the appropriate disposition before God that is fitting with grace, that is fitting with faith. Now, as you read this, uh, these two verses, it, it might almost seem like abounding in faith is just kind of, ta- or abounding in, in thanksgiving is kind of just tagged on. Almost as if Paul just picks a random fruit of the Spirit and just adds it in there. And you might wonder why not abounding in in faith or abounding in patience or some other thing? Uh, why, why does he choose abounding in thankfulness? It might just seem a bit random, uh, but I would submit that such an attitude of overflowing thankfulness that Paul's talking about here does help to guard us against the allurements of strange and false philosophies that would draw us away from Christ and the gospel. Thankfulness helps to serve our souls in abiding in Christ. Often, an an ingratitude leads us to desire or maybe even demand more from God. Maybe we want more feel-good experiences. We want that constant high of a rush, the camp high, the conference high, whatever we want to call it. We just want to live on that mountaintop and certain false teachings and philosophies and mysticism and different things come in and they promise this kind of life. You should be living that way all the time and we start to get drawn away. It can lead to dissatisfaction and gratitude in many other ways. We want programs tailored to my felt needs. Maybe we want more power, more people to think of us more highly. Perhaps we want really to be some sort of revolutionary. We want to be a world changer. We're dissatisfied with our lowly estate. We don't want to just serve in a menial way whatever gifts we might be given. We want to be front and center of a movement. This is very prominent, especially young people, aimed at young people. We're taught by many to be dissatisfied if we're not at the forefront of some movement. 
And so we can come to desire more in any number of ways. Forgiveness of sins, eternal salvation, pardon from an eternity in hell under the wrath of God, instead being clothed in the righteousness of Christ to dwell forever with our triune God and with all of his redeemed, ultimately, in the new heaven and new earth, this becomes not quite enough for us. How gratitude changes things. Gratitude breeds contentment in whatever state the Lord has us in. Contentment in being considered nothing or lowly or despised by the world. Gratitude for these things can bring joy to serve the Lord in little ways and in little things. can bring happiness to serve the Lord as best we can, to die and then be forgotten, if that's the plan that the Lord has for us. can bring gladness to seek Christ's honor, whatever shame we might receive for it. With Moses taking the reproach of Christ instead of the treasures of Egypt. And gratitude breeds desire to walk in ways that are befitting those who serve the holy and almighty God. And so Paul adds, abounding in thanksgiving. And so again, the Christian life is not one that is about moving on from objective truths, moving on from certainty in the doctrines of Christ, in the gospel of his death, his resurrection, for the forgiveness of sins. It's not about moving on from these things. It is not about being prepared to shift with whatever the, the whatever way the wind might be blowing, with whatever the world might be saying today. Rather, it is about being built up in the faith once for all delivered to the saints built upon the foundation that is laid for us in Scripture, the foundation of Christ, His life, death, and resurrection. In light of the fact that Christ is where true wisdom and knowledge are found, that maturity is said by the Lord through His servant Paul to be full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of Christ, we are therefore called to stand firm here and to continue on in this here, having been rooted in this and being built up upon this foundation. And we are called upon to continue walking in this manner with abundant gratitude to God. And as we'll see next week, on the negative side, we are called to then resist that which would draw us away from this empty philosophies and vain deceit. But we'll get to that next time. Let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you needy. We come to you and pray that you would keep us ever true. We would be fools 
to stand here in our own flesh and be self-confident. Father, we, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, strengthen us, that you would indeed build us up and establish us in the faith. Father, I pray that you would fill us with gratitude, convict us of complaining spirit, a grumbling spirit, fill us with thanksgiving and gratitude for all you've done for us, particularly and especially what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. Father, you are good. We do give you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.